on this episode of the LP, Literature in Practice. We made the shift from really thinking about giving more to those who need more to, you know, a focus on test scores and excellence and how we're going to measure teacher quality and quantify that so that we can be competitive with other nations. And this is why elections matter. This huge shift where now everyone's focused on accountability and test scores. That was not the case before then. At Unbounded, we pride ourselves on working to find justice in the details of teaching and learning. The low-key and obvious instructional choices made in classrooms are included in those details. It's also important to see how those choices and in instruction are impacted by policy choices. Policy choices which, by the way, take place at our local level, state level, and national level. Depending on the equity value of these choices, this multi-filtered choice system can lead to compounded success or compounded failure for the students the systems, schools, and staff are supposed to serve. Many of you know when failure is an outcome of a school district or network, it can get real messy, really rooted, really fast, and challenging to re-engineer. It helps to understand the background of the politics that inform the domino effect. Sonia Douglas, Janelle T. Scott, and Gary L. Anderson help us do that with their book, The Politics of Education Policy in an Era of Inequality. Join us as Sonia Douglas and I discuss the book and its ability to reveal the mechanics behind the madness and the engineering that can take place so our kids can experience some democratic schooling. This is the LP. Welcome, folks and fam of all walks and talks to the LP Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourage student instruction to be more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. The book we're going to be talking about is Politics of Education Policy in an Era of Inequality, Possibilities for Democratic Schooling. Professor Douglas is an author and Black education leader. She is currently a professor at Columbia University. Um, where she focuses on education leadership, policy, politics, and practice. She has published more than 20 articles in highly respected journals and has edited three books on educational equity and leadership. She is a director of the Black Education Research Collective, which focuses on devotion to conducting, translating, and disseminating research that leads to improved educational opportunities, experiences, and outcomes for Black children and youth. And she's also the co-director of Teacher College's Urban Education Leaders Program, which is a program for practicing and aspiring district-level education leaders committed to equity, justice, and excellence. What's going on, Professor Douglas? Hi, Brandon. It's great to see you and great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. No doubt. Uh, thanks for accepting. The first question I want to ask you before we hop into uh, the text, I would love to hear you explain why you didn't have a favorite text as a kid. Please share more about how you went from not reading like that to being the author of 20 plus articles and journals and editing and writing books. <laughs> I really wasn't maybe an avid reader. I was a very good student. You know, I completed my assignments. I was a straight-A student, kind of did what I was told and was able to kind of understand schooling. But, you know, as I continued to learn and grow through college, graduate school, and then through doctoral study, I really became interested when I had a chance to explore the topics that were of interest to me. And much of that, you know, dealt with issues of race and culture, which I wouldn't have described it back then, but just always kind of grappling with the very blatant inequalities or lack of connection that, you know, I may have experienced with the text that I was exposed to, you know, I kind of understand that better again now. 
from an intellectual perspective, but not until you posed that question did I really think about, you know, what I, I wasn't really, you know, cuddled up with books or maybe in a environment um, around, you know, parents that read a lot or were reading newspapers or, or books like that. And so it was a really, you know, I think important question to ask and thinking about my own identity as a reader um, and then later as an author. And, um, you know, a lot of my writing is academic scholarship, so it has a certain uh, feel and flair, but maybe, you know, one day I'll write something that's um, more broadly accessible. No. Hey, you know what? If that, but if that's your lane, that's your lane, right? And you know, it's 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 fascinating to think about. Like basically, kind of what I heard, and correct me if I'm off. Reading was like a, it was a tool of survival or functionality to get through the schooling. And until you got through the schooling, you got an op opportunity to actually have it be a part of your education. Where you're like, oh, I actually like reading, or actually find purpose in reading more fully in terms of who I am now that I'm in this space where I can actually see its context for what I would like to do and who I'd like to be and how I'd like to be. Yeah, I think that's very well, well stated. It was kind of, yeah, more of a means to an end in many ways. But then I realized yeah. that, you know, I still like nonfiction. I still like news. I like biographies. I like to read things that I feel are, you know, very relevant to, I guess, my work and my interests. Let's hop into your text with the very big and general question. Who is your text designed for? It's designed for aspiring and practicing educators, um, but I think anyone who is interested in education, that would include leaders, policymakers, individuals who work in nonprofit organizations, community organizers, anyone who is interested in deepening their understanding of why education looks the way and feels the way that it does now and wants to, you know, take up tools and strategies to to change it and to make it into the types of spaces that we think children deserve, and which include, you know, caring and expert adults and pedagogues who are able to support them and to teach them and to also um, learn from them. Um, and so that's really who the book is written for. Um, it does take up a critical lens which we found to be underrepresented in policy texts. So as we think about, you know, the large numbers of educators, of teachers, of school leaders who go through um, undergraduate and graduate education programs, we wanted to offer a text that, again, took a more critical lens that looked at and centered issues of power and politics in education to help better explain, um, at least we feel, to help better explain the dynamics that we see in schools today um, and the need to, to transform and change them. Yeah. I hear a lot of, in your description of who the text is designed for, like, people who want to also do something about what they get to analyze through the uh, over the course of the text. Are there specific uh, action steps or even like general action steps you'd like folks to take based upon the info that they have read in the text? From the text, definitely. I think, again, it's just um, understanding that it's important um, or recognizing that it's important for us, one, to have some shared language around issues of race and culture um, and education and the purpose and values associated with education. I think the current moment underscores how different and conflicting and competing the visions of education can be when you look at different communities and different groups of parents or, or educators. And so I think understanding that democracy is part of negotiating what we value and what we view as the purpose of education and being able to ideally as mature adults who are informed are able to come to some agreement on what we expect our you know, children to learn. So just being, you know, thoughtful and taking the time to think about language, to think about these concepts, the belief systems and values that we bring to what we believe an education should really be about and how that might be the same or very different 
from other members of our community or other citizens across the country. And so I think, you know, I'm, and it's not necessarily in this text, but the work that I'm doing now is really shifting toward focusing on kind of the inward work that each of us needs to do if we call ourselves an educator or a leader, that we have taken the destiny of others into our hands um, when we choose to take up a title like that and to do the serious inward work and reflective work that ensures that we are responsible to what it means to be an educator. A lot of your book talks about, it focuses on policy, right? Like it's, you know, in the name. And policy, I feel like, and education in other spaces can get mystified, right? As this hard to understand, cryptic kind of inaccessible thing to really put down to be able to fix things. Yeah, I think, you know, there's this false separation um, in many instances between leadership and policy. And, you know, if you think about a building principle, for example, in a school system, I mean, they're a policy implementer and a policy maker. I mean, they're also making decisions that affect the lives of the students and teachers in their building. So to me, there, you know, there's this kind of false distinction that we make oftentimes in thinking about leadership and policy as separate things in terms of, you know, your reference to policy language and, you know, legislation, bills, you know, I don't really enjoy <laughs> reading um, um, bills or, you know, policy in that format as well. But I think to your point, it's important that we understand that so it doesn't feel like a barrier or obstacle to being a part of that process of being able to weigh in and shape the language that's in that policy, because at the end of the day, that's actually what administrators and leaders are going to be implementing. And so, you know, who wants to implement policy that does not align with your interests, that doesn't align with the research and, and the knowledge that you have as a practitioner, you know, every day is what we wanted to accomplish in this book in addressing an audience also that includes educational leaders who are oftentimes really in these difficult situations where they are, you know, uh, required to implement policies that go directly against what they know is right for professional practice and what they know is um, right for children. You talk a lot about ed leadership research having an ahistorical nature, right? Like we work in this vacuum of acting like what we're dealing with now isn't connected to past. What would you say are important pieces of forgotten history that impacts education leadership and or classroom instruction? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, you touched on a lot of points there, and I think um, much of it is taken up in leadership preparation programs, for example, which many principals and uh, district level leaders go through. Um, I have the honor and privilege of co-directing our Urban Education Leaders Program at Teachers College, and I think the beauty of being able to work directly with students who are um, living, you know, in school buildings and at districts in a large urban systems every day is to be really close to you know, the challenges and also the bright spots that they have the chance to experience in those roles and then bring some of the questions of and the problems of practice that they have to bear into, you know, the classroom and to think about how we as emerging scholars and members of a research community begin to take up those problems of practice in ways that ultimately help create better learning environments for students and for teachers. You know, I think there's a lot of components that go into how we prepare leaders and, you know, one of the things that I struggle with quite a bit is thinking about how we create environments that and the conditions that will allow individuals who want to go into district level leadership, for example, to be successful. And I think right now it's really hard to kind of see how you do that job and do that job well for a long period of time, given, you know, the, the very um, complex and multifaceted challenges 
that, you know, say a school district superintendent um, has to deal with on a, or not deal with, but is responsible for leading on a daily basis. There's a lot of, I think, work to be done. There's a lot that we can learn from those individuals who dedicate themselves to supporting our students and school communities on a daily basis. But there's also the, the visionary work that's necessary when we're not clear on what that is and what that looks like for all children as well, not for a certain, you know, particular group of children, but for the, um, you know, the culturally pluralist community that communities that make up the United States, this is the time where we need to come together as researchers, as practitioners, as policymakers, as community members to figure out what we really value as a nation and what we value as citizens of the world so that we can create an education system that prepares young people for that vision. You talk about that vision, right? The pluralistic democratic vision. Is there like one policy, federal, state, or otherwise, that you feel like represents a roadblock to that particular vision? I mean, I don't know that it's one set of policies. I mean, we could, you know, there's a lot of discussion about white supremacy, right? And I think that while we throw the term around quite a bit, we do have to recognize that kind of the governance system of laws and policies in this country in a lot of ways uphold white supremacy. And it's not just a synonym for white racism, but the ways in which laws, policies, elections, campaigns, business and industry play a role in maintaining and holding power and resources and capital in this country. So for people of color, for example, that legacy continues to have huge implications for access to education, to healthcare, um, in many ways to freedom. When we think about mass incarceration is, you know, a huge example of how white supremacist policies and practices have continued to literally enslave and limit the freedoms and rights of peoples of color. And, you know, education is no exception. We continue to see this now with the Supreme Court that we have now and, you know, the interest in ensuring or not ensuring that all children have access to education and continued debates about how public dollars should um, and should not be used to either fund public schools or what you know some who don't support public education call government schools or religious instruction. So you know these battles are nothing new. I think what is important is that for each generation of educators and especially for each generation of peoples of African descent in particular, we understand that history. We understand that legacy. We're not surprised or shocked, you know, maybe saddened and disappointed, but not surprised when we see continued acts of racial discrimination bias. Um, at every level in this country. Um, but what we should be focusing our energies on is taking the knowledge that we do have from our ancestors, from our, from our elders, from a Black intellectual tradition that really equated education with freedom, not only lamenting you know, the fact that we've been learning in a burning house, but now recognizing that it's time to build a new house. And so how do we shift our energies to taking up the work of developing a blueprint and getting the resources to build that new house on the foundation that we know it needs to be built upon. I'm going to ask you if a certain policy or uh, legislation or court choice helped democratic schooling or harmed democratic schooling and good uh, instruction or both, if it's a shade of gray. And I like to start with Brown versus Board. Helped, harmed, or both for classroom instruction? For classroom, well, it's not that simple, Brandon. I think, yeah. um, you know, a lot of my work has kind of raised the critique and it was grounded in um, and informed by the work of, you know, scholars like Derek Bell, of W.B. Du Bois, and just this tradition that really named the fact that as Black people in America, there's always this struggle between full 
accessing the rights of full citizenship in many ways. And so, you know, I, I often use the word equality as opposed to equity, you know, kind of connect us back to the fact that we deserve as citizens equal rights and protections under the law and to not be treated differently, but equally in being able to access those rights and protections. So in terms of Brown versus Board of Education, I think it was extremely critical and important to quote Adolf Reed, it broke the, the institutional back of Jim Crow. And so I think it's important to remember that, that because it said that separate but equal is not equal, you know, it did overturn Plessy versus Ferguson, which was really important in terms of dismantling Jim Crow, you know, as we know it, in terms of a, a legal system of segregation. I'll lean on um, some of the reflections of Professor Edmund Gordon, who at 101 years old, although I think he, you know, he gave a presentation when he was still 100, <laughs> around his own reflections around the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which he was a, you know, a proponent of and supporter of. But he says in reflecting on it, he realizes that the focus should have been more on resources as opposed to, you know, the movement of individuals and the focus on the desegregation of schools by race. Because to your point and to your question, it didn't really help or improve or address classroom teaching. Um, I think Brown, again, we don't want to overlook its significance in, again, breaking the institutional back of legal segregation, but maybe not as impactful in the area of edu education in terms of how it, and I don't think that's what it was designed to do anyway. I mean, it, it focused on schools and children and education, but um, I think the point really was to, to end um, this notion of separate but equal. Elementary and Secondary Education Act, help classroom instruction, harm it, or in between? I think um, that ESEA was significant in 1965. I mean, it really points to, again, the civil rights uh, laws and legislation that you know were a result of a lot of the organizing and activism that many African-Americans in the United States led and fought for and bled and, and died for. And so it's important not to lose sight of that. So I think it's significant in that way and that we should recognize what President Johnson did in passing ESEA. And again, it was to address poverty. It was to, that's where we have Title I. It was really about getting dollars and resources to the children and communities that needed it. Um, over time, you know, legislation gets reauthorized. And so that is No Child Left Behind. <laughs> you know, that's what it became when we made this shift from really thinking about giving more to those who need more to, a sh you know, a focus on test scores and excellence and how we're gonna measure teacher quality, and quantify that so that we can be competitive with other nations. And this is why elections matter. Being a part of the policy discourse matters because that's what we end up living by. And so when you think about how education has, has just shifted so dramatically post No Child Left Behind, where now everyone's focused on accountability and test scores, that was not the case before then. And so you've had generations of educators who were trained and developed and have taught under that environment, which also has the implications for what you know, what teaching and education looks like now. And so policy is extremely important at every level. Again, um, No Child Left Behind, Race to the Top is another example of a federal grant competition, you know, during the recession that was very effective in getting states to change their education laws and constitutions in many ways to be able to open the doors to charter schools. Policy does matter, the political process matter, who um, is in the state legislature, who serves on um, you know, your county boards, your city council, and your local school boards is critically important. So it's all connected and it's important that educators are armed and equipped with that knowledge to be able to, to do their work, you know, to know what obstacles are there, but to also know what resources are available to help them you know, advance their, their vision and to do their work effectively.
let's say I'm a teacher and I hear all this wealth of information around this legacy of policy leading up to this very moment I'm teaching, how do I use this information about policy that's currently going on and the policy that it is a progeny of to be a better teacher? I mean, I think like all information, you know, having more of it, particularly in terms of how it impacts your life and how it impacts your professional life in this case, it can just be illuminating, right? Like you realize that certain challenges or things that you might be facing aren't necessarily limited to your school building or your classroom, but is a result of a set of policies that maybe didn't make the best sense or, you know, don't have the best interests of children at heart. And so I think part of it is just having that awareness can free us from, you know, some of the the burdens and struggles associated with thinking that there's something else that we might be able to do or that there's something that someone else should be doing in my building um, and realizing that it's not the case that, you know, and it's, It's something that a lot of educators are experiencing on a wide scale. I also think um, better understanding policy and and what is and isn't permissible, for example, and how those policies were developed can help increase our agency as individuals, whether we're teachers, principals, or parents. And when we understand that policy process, some of it, which is rational, much of it, which isn't, (laughs) then we can say, okay, well, I, now that I understand how this works, I can find a way to include my voice and my ideas and mobilize my community and some of my other classroom teachers and maybe even my, you know, principal and others to help us think through how we can maybe change this policy or find ways to to work around it um, if that's the case. So again, just having more information and more tools at one's disposal, I think allows us to lead, to teach, to educate from a more powerful place. And, you know, my concern is that educators are beaten up so much that oftentimes it feels like you don't have that power. But when you see how, you know, messy and complicated um, and irrational, irrational the policy process is, I think it then can free us up from the energy and frustration that's focused on that toward, again, the building community, the building ideas and designing educational spaces that are, you know, filled with joy, filled with happiness, filled with curiosity and creativity. And um, that that is what we should be striving for. And that it's possible. It's within our reach. I'm theorizing that there should be some overall traits, whether you are creating policy in the classroom or in Congress, that good democratic schooling policy should have. What are good policy traits that should be present at all levels from classroom instruction to Congress? Now, it's a it's a tricky thing because I think while we want uniformity, and this is a part of the, I think, the struggle in, in education and a lot of issues, right, in a democracy, is that tension between the democratic process and then having kind of that uniformity. I hope that we can get there. (laughs) And I can speak on behalf of Burke in articulating, you know, the five things that we think are important to what we call an emancipatory vision of education. The first is that education is a civil and human right. And while that seems like such a basic thing, you know, when you think about the type of education that many students are getting, I would argue that it is not currently being met. And so we want to make sure that everyone has access to education and that we recognize it as both a civil and human right. The second is that education, you know, it's a social, cultural, and political process. And so just, again, naming that and recognizing that education is really, in many ways, the transmission of cultural values, to quote Mwali Mashuja, um, who makes that distinction also between schooling and education. So schooling is the indoctrination and often much of what we do in K-12 systems um, versus education, which is this, this transmission of cultural values. So the question then becomes, what are the values that we treasure? 
as a country. And this is where we see a lot of tension. But again, stepping back to name the fact that education has a cultural component, social and political, I think allows us to open up the doors for um, conversations, again, from the, at the classroom level to the federal level. The third is that uh, education is a calling and a valued profession. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about how teachers are not necessarily disrespected or revered in the way that they should be given their role in schools and society. So we have to have this understanding that I don't know that everybody can teach. And I know that's probably an unpopular opinion, but I think that there are certain individuals who are called and gifted to teach, or if not, just have that passion and desire to do that, that we should acknowledge that. And we should also ensure that teachers have the support and the compensation um, and the respect that they deserve as part of very important members of our society. And the fourth is that education is a collective responsibility. All of us have a role and responsibility to play when it comes to education, to supporting young people and learners of all ages. And we need to think about that when we think about how we, again, continue to transform education around equity and justice. And then finally, that education is the practice of freedom. And we seem to be moving further and further away from that belief and that principle when we look at, I mean, we're, we have a school prison nexus. It's not even a pipeline, right? I mean, we see how these systems are so identical and overlapped and how we continue to funnel children, not only, you know, while in school into these spaces, but thinking also about the lack of safety that they experience given mass shootings, you know, that schools are not safe places, they're not safe havens anymore. And so that is not liberatory. It is not okay. And we must think about education as the practice of freedom in terms of freeing our minds as well as our physical bodies. I mean, we have students who are actually being apprehended and arrested and controlled in our schools and places where they should be loved and cared for. We're just talking about humanity, treating individuals as human beings, respecting one another's culture and perspectives and respecting the individuals that we entrust with our children for you know most of the day and most of the year. Do you foresee a right to a high quality education becoming a constitutional right? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just, I believe anything is possible if you put your mind to it um, and, you know, equip yourself with the knowledge to make it happen. What would it take? How would you present, for example, to the Supreme Court? This is what qualifies as an education, you know, a high quality education that every child should have access to. I don't know exactly what the answer to that is at this moment. I mean, I think that that is the work that we need to be taking up right now as we see major paradigm shifts happening in American politics and world politics. Um, as we see many of the rights that, you know, we have taken for granted being rolled back, including the right to an education and coming, I think, convening, again, scholars, practitioners, policymakers, and community members to really discuss what we believe are the essential components and necessary elements of a quality education for all children. And so that work is being done. I mean, there's a lot of um, working groups, roundtables, um, and uh, scientific organizations that have really determined, for example, what the indicators are for educational equity that have helped us to understand the science of learning and what's required to ensure that students have access to learning opportunities that will really enrich and develop them in that process. So I think, you know, it's just determining like who leads that effort and makes that connection between research to inform policy and then ensure that practitioners have the tools and resources they need to make it happen. And so I certainly think it's possible. Again, that's what Burke is aiming to do on a scale that's focused on Black communities in particular. Again, because it's you know a, a targeted population that we can really um, begin to focus on and saturate 
our attention and ideas and um, the evidence that we do have and the strategies that we do have at our disposal to kind of make that happen. And so that's really the exciting thing about the Education Equity Action Plan, which is the initiative that has funded um, the development of a PK-12 Black Studies curriculum uh, in New York City is because although it's focused on developing a Black Studies curriculum, it's bringing together all of these other issues that we have addressed, you know, during our time together today as it relates to what constitutes a high quality education. And so these are questions that we're continuing, you know, to kind of engage and come back to as we think about, you know, the content of a curriculum, but okay, how does this connect to larger issues of equity, democracy, justice? What does and should a young person in the United States know about the history of this country? What should they know and understand about race and racism and white supremacy? What does that look like for white students? You know, what does a Black Studies curriculum look like for students who are not African-American or Black? Um, and what does it mean to be taught by a teacher workforce that's still predominantly um, white and female, right? Are there any federal, state, or local policies that are giving you hope right now? The Education Equity Action Plan gives me a lot of hope. Let's speak on that a little bit, if you can. Cause... I mean, the fact that you have, you know, the city council of the largest of New York City and a group of organizations, a coalition of organizations who were able to advocate for funding to do this, I mean, is really tremendous. In light of, you know, the controversy and the conflict around the allegations of teaching CRT in schools and book bannings and, you know, all of the other, I think, racially charged and violent activities that are taking place right now. And so while we know we have, you know, a fight ahead of us because everyone is not going to embrace this. And so it really depends on who you ask. But for me, having the local leadership and the political will in um, the mayor, you know, members of the city council and, um, and through our partnership with the Department of Education, which is, again, you know, serving over 1.1 million students. Um, it's very exciting to be at this historic and pivotal stage of developing something that has not been done before and knowing that it is also changing the conversation around what a high quality education looks like, for whom, to what end and how do we know um, and so we are very excited to be part of this historic work. Again, you know, not to be disillusioned into thinking that there's not going to be uh, resistance ahead, but when we know our history, <laughs> right, um, we're not surprised by that. We're actually anticipating and prepared for it. How would you suggest that your text helps support folks who want to make instruction more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful for students? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll just end with one of my favorite quotes, which is by Alice Walker. And she says that the easiest way that we give up our power is by believing we don't have any. And so despite all of the odds and what people will say about teachers and what needs to happen, you know, I just think that teaching and education is such, it is a calling and it's such an important gift to our young people, to families and to communities. And so, you know, kill the noise, as they say, continue to do the work that you know is important, continue to edify and and care for and love yourself so that you can continue to, to do the work that is so important to our young people and to our society. And so I just uh, salute you and thank you and ask you to stay encouraged that change and help is on the way and you know join the movement for emancipatory education. This spin of the LP with Sonia Douglas has left me with a few things to reflect on. From the federal level to the classroom level, everybody in the education system is a policy implementer and a policy maker. And yes, I count instructional choices as policy. We make them and deliver them within our own circles of influence and control. 
knowing this can set us up to create policies that counteract inequitable policies and amplify equitable ones. Our education system is a lot like a house, I'm realizing. Policy is the foundation and framing of this house, informing instructional experiences of students. And if a new house is needed, what belongs in the foundation? And how do we adjust the framing for the house to lend to grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful instruction? I'm also wrestling with the fact that values inform policy. Dr. Douglas offers the following values. Education is a civil and human right. Education is a social, cultural, and political process. Education is a calling and a valued profession. Education is a collective responsibility, and education is the practice of freedom. If we embrace these values, what would our instructional and institutional policies look like? Thanks to the work of folks like Dr. Douglas, we can imagine and expand opportunities to make these values a reality within our own circles of influence and control. If you'd like to get more info on this episode's author, the featured text, and how you can apply your newly acquired knowledge in your profession, we got you. Check us out on the LP website at unbounded.org forward slash LP. You can also check us out on social media. Find us on LinkedIn or Facebook, or you can find us on Instagram at Lit in Practice Pod or Twitter on Unbounded the LP. On your social or podcast platform, please leave a review and let us know who you'd like for us to interview next. This is Brandon White. Thanks for listening to the LP, Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourages student instruction to become more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Peace and progress. <laughs>